Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recording. This is Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Never say never, but never. I plan on leading this team with an unwavering standard. Everybody love everybody. We will call it the golden standard. And this is the standard that will drive this football program to its 12th national championship. With Sean Styers. I like that guy. What you could do is, is you could have a barbecue on that it's head. a good time, you know what I mean? On Sports Radio 960 AM, double. USBT. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's bare-chested and banging his chest. They're chasing him. They're not going to get him. And now your host, Sean Styers. Hello there. It's just a beautiful day. Our nation's NFL overtime ordeal is now a thing of the past. Put this in your mouth. NFL owners today approved a modified overtime format. It guarantees that both teams are going to get one possession, at least one pos- possession in Overtime. We've been living with a somewhat convoluted overtime rule where, you know, the first team scores a touchdown, the game's over, meaning the team that won the coin toss had a perceived advantage. More on that in a second. But if the team that had the ball first did not score a touchdown, the other team could get the ball and a field goal could still win the game, you know, safety, whatever it happens to be. But since the current requirement for an opening possession touchdown was instituted in the 2012 regular season teams that won the coin toss have won 50 percent of the time according to nfl data 50 percent it's just like a coin toss it's 50 50 (laughs) whether you win the coin toss you know that uh, you win the coin toss you win the game now that's the regular season but that number has ticked up a bit um, to 54% since the league shortened overtime from a minimum of 15 minutes down to 10 minutes five years ago. But there has been a big jump in the postseason. Seven of the 12 postseason overtime games have been won on the opening possession, which is strange. I guess maybe it's just because you've got a more condensed amount of games compared to regular season games that go overtime. I don't know, but... Ten of those 12 were won by the team that won the coin toss. So there you go. Uh, They're going to still use the current overtime rule in the regular season, but they're going to go to the new format. Each team is guaranteed an overtime possession going forward. And, of course, a lot of uproar after the the Bills lost to the the Chiefs in that classic playoff game. And, and, um, you know, both teams should have had the ball and the whole thing, and and so now both teams will get a chance to have the ball. Good, you know, good for the NFL, good for everybody, good for fans, and and the whole thing. It's they're they're going to, I think, what is a uh, a better model. Both teams are going to have the ball at least once, and we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, just how much things change after that. Uh, coming up in a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by a Hall of Fame college baseball coach, Paul Maneri. This year is the 20th anniversary of Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team. Maneri is going to stop in on the show. He's going to share some of his memories and uh, one of the uh, 
only of the the one and only Notre Dame team in the past 65 years to make it to the College World Series. So again, 20 years since 2002. Paul Maneri is going to join me here in uh, just a few minutes. How about a little Notre Dame football talk first? Of course, we've got the spring game, the blue gold game coming up April 23rd, Notre Dame Stadium. You will hear it right here on Sports Radio 960 AM, WSBT, and former Irish quarterback Tommy Rees going into his third season as the offensive coordinator at his alma mater. And he's got a quarterback derby on his hands this spring. And not only that, it's largely his role to figure it all out. Brian, you know, Brian Kelly would have understandably had his hands all over the spring's competition if he were still here as an offensive-minded head coach. But he's gone at LSU. Former defensive coordinator and first-time head coach Marcus Freeman fully admits he's no quarterback guru. Guru, He said that. I'm no quarterback guru. So uh, most of the decision-making and mentoring of these quarterbacks is left to Tommy Reese. And he has two young and fairly inexperienced quarterbacks at one and two on the depth chart in Tyler Buckner and Drew Pine. So in Reese is Reese's coaching style any different working with these younger guys now after having some veterans like Jack Cohn last year, Ian Book before that, to work with the last couple of seasons in his first two years as offensive coordinator? Yeah, I think year to year you learn, uh, you adapt. Um, guys react differently to different types of coaching. Um you know, there probably wasn't anything I could say to Ian or Jack that would rattle them. I tried, but I, you pretty much could coach them how you needed to. Um, you know, I think a lot of that comes with time. You know, I know it sounds odd with Jack, but, you know, he was so mature that he, he could handle it. I think that comes with time and, and reps. Um, you know, we've, we've as a group talked about, hey, on the field, let's talk through it. Let's coach it, get it right. And then if the film sessions are a little tougher then we'll leave it in the film session. And that's something that I talked with Tyler and Drew about. Um, it's something they're on board with. But no, we, I have a very close knit relationship with not just those two, but the whole room. And, you know, they know at the end of the day that their best interest is in mind. You know, anytime there's a coaching point, um, you know, they're hungry, they're eager to look, keep getting better and learn. And, and uh, you know, of course, the two guys, again, Tyler Buckner, Drew Pine. Buckner's a sophomore to be, while Pine is uh, going to be a junior with sophomore eligibility. So they've both got essentially the same eligibility remaining. And here's some uh, specific thoughts from Reese on those two. They've been outstanding. You know, I think Drew's always had that. You know, he's just that kid. He's that personality. He has kind of that energy that people gravitate to. He's loud. He knows how to communicate, you know, Ty has it in him, you know, he's ultra competitive. Um, but the big thing for Ty was let's get that out of this off season, put you in some positions to do that. You know, they were SWAT team leaders together and their team, you know, won a bunch of, a bunch of, uh, I think they won the overall points. So, um, you know, they did a great job of getting those guys, you know, communicating and putting them in a position to have a successful off season. Buckner last year was uh, 21 of 35 completed 68% or 60, rather, percent of his passes for 298 yards, three touchdowns and uh, three interceptions as well. And, of course, rushing was his big forte, 46 carries, 336 yards, average over seven yards per carry coming in. And uh, the second leading rusher he ended up behind Cameron Williams for the Fighting Irish and also the second most rushing touchdowns, only three of them compared to Cameron Williams' 14, but still second most for a guy who was seeing spot duty out there. 
Pine, 15 of 30, 224 yards, completed just 50% of his passes, which is interesting because they they both ended up, Buckner with 35 attempts, Pine with 30, and Buckner, I think, probably considered, you know, at least when you think of the two, the more erratic passer of the two, not quite as refined, but he actually completed 60% of his passes to Pine's 50%, and uh, Pine, who is definitely mobile, not not the runner that Buckner is, of course, six carries for minus six rushing yards is what Pine ended up with this past season. So here's what Reese says are the goals for his quarterbacks this spring. I mean, we have like benchmarks we want to hit. Really, it's about um, continuing to build uh, the ability to just make good decisions. You know, at the end of the day, playing quarterbacks about making the right decision. And so if you have, you know, 70 plays and you're at 90% of your decision-making, you're going to put your team in a, in a position to be successful more often than not. You know, and some of that too is continuing to, as we get through spring, it's okay. This is the 100 level, this is the 200 level. How far advanced can we get by the end of the spring? And for me, I got to play that line where let's not put too much on them. Let's slowly build it. But by practice 12, 13, you know, really where are we at, you know, in terms of being advanced within the system. Buckner had at least one pass attempt and at least two rushing attempts in 10 games for the Fighting Irish last season. Six of 14, 113 yards, a touchdown, two interceptions in his most extensive duty against Virginia Tech, and uh, 12 carries for 67 yards and another touchdown on the ground as well. Pine only played in the two games, back-to-back. Wisconsin and Cincinnati helped lead the uh, comeback win over Wisconsin, uh, going 6 of 8 for 81 yards with a touchdown pass, and then against Cincinnati came off the bench when Jack Cohn was uh, benched, and he goes 9 for 22, 143 yards, a touchdown, no interceptions. Didn't see him. After that, here's what Tommy Reese has seen from his quarterbacks, though. Uh, they've, made, they've made really good decisions. You know, they haven't put the ball in harm's way a whole lot. Um, they've led. They've, there's some new things they've handled very well. Um, you know, both of them are getting the most reps that they've ever received, and, and they've handled it well. You know, I don't think – I wouldn't say I'm surprised, but I'm probably uh, – I'm, I'm very pleased. And uh, I've been happy with how they've handled their business and the way they've approached each day. and. Um, you know, as the defense adds schemes, as we add things, we add situations that will keep getting, you know, more and more. And, you know, as those things pile up, you know, we want them to continue with the same mentality as that. And, you know, just kind of looking at uh, Tyler Buckner Saturday, looking like a guy who's already feeling more comfortable playing quarterback, not aiming the ball and, and just uh, already looking a little bit more smooth from some of the video I was able to see because again I wasn't able to be there because I was uh, on the road with uh, Notre Dame women's basketball last weekend at the NCAA tournament but uh, as far as Tommy Reese right now I mean there is a lot that comes with being the quarterback at Notre Dame that is more than just fundamentals and Saturdays and and in between and the whole thing there's a lot of scrutiny that comes along with it I think you can probably say that of you know, any of the top sports at Notre Dame, there is a, a lot of scrutiny that comes along with being a uh, a football player, a basketball player for either of the teams at Notre Dame. And when you're the quarterback at Notre Dame, you know, there is even more so. Just look at, you know, everything that's happened over the last four years, whether it's, or, I mean, you can go back even farther than that, obviously, whether it's, you know, back to Brandon Wimbush and things that were 
going on there with his mechanics that led to more Ian Book and Ian Book leading the Irish to a couple of college football playoff berths, but that still wasn't enough in in uh, some regards. You know, you know when you again when you look at the scrutiny that comes with it, and then Jack Cohn last year. I was just talking about how Jack Cohn got benched against Cincinnati, Notre Dame's only regular season loss of the year, and a lot of people calling for uh, Drew Pine to be the starter, or maybe even Tyler Buckner to go out there and be the starter. But they went back to Jack Cohn, and after that Virginia Tech game, when he led that. Game-winning drive at the end. They uh, they went to a little bit more tempo, and things changed afterwards. But again, there's you know you, everyone everyone has their opinions on the Notre Dame quarterback, and there's a lot of scrutiny that comes with it. Scrutiny that Tommy Reese is used to after playing quarterback himself for the Fighting Irish and being a part of that 2012 team that went to the BCS championship game. And here's some thoughts from Tommy Reese about prepping the quarterbacks for the Notre Dame quarterback scrutiny. Yeah. Um, look, both of them have already been in that position. So I think that helps. Um, you know, both of them are confident kids, which certainly helps. Um, you know, you have to create competitive pressure filled opportunities in practice. You know, um, they've, you know, for Drew, he saw Ian and Jack, you know, Ty, he saw Jack and how he handled it. I think those are two great examples of guys handling their business the right way and not being, you know, caught off guard or pushed off the tracks, you know, when things weren't perfect. And so we have the examples set. You know, I think um, obviously I can relate back to my own experiences and have those, you know, heart-to-heart conversations with how to handle it. I think, you know, there's a number of people in our building that have played here or understand this place and can help them, you know? So I don't think that the resources stop with me. Um, you know, and you tell them just, Hey, if you play well, things are going to be fine, <laughs> you know? So that's a joke, but uh, no, they're, they're good. They handle it. They know, they know what the expectations are. We don't deviate from those expectations and um, they've handled themselves very well. I like it when Tommy Reese tells you when it's a joke. I mean, the guy can be uh, pretty sarcastic and funny, himself but uh, had to make sure that uh, everybody knew that that was a joke and one final thought from Tommy Reese because you know again like when you look at what he did last year when they reshaped the offense basically mid-season after you know a a run-heavy offense in 2020 because uh, you know they they had such a great offensive line and uh, you know surplus of tight ends that they were able to take advantage of it was more run-heavy at that, you know, for for uh, that season in 2020, they shifted it up last year, and uh, you know it was more pass heavy, especially early on. But the way they went about it, that had to change because of the function of the offensive line that was, let's face it, not good, and a quarterback that, let's face it, was not very mobile in Jack Cohn. So they had to switch things up, and and uh, you know they kind of got that fire from the end of that Virginia Tech game. So here's some some thoughts from Tommy Reese about being able to build his offense suited to the strengths of the personnel that he has. Yeah, spring's definitely the first steps. Um, spring isn't every isn't all of it, right? Obviously, like, you know, we're without Avery Davis right now. We're without Jared Patterson right now. You know, there's guys that aren't here that are going to be key contributors. So, you know, you look at this as a situation to really, you know, find out are there – you know, guys that 
can help you? Are there guys that can carve out a role for themselves? You know, how much can you build onto a guy like Deion Colsey or Jaden Thomas? Like how much do they have? Um, so this is a great period to evaluate the full roster and look at the depth of each position. Um, you know, Springs also, to be honest with you, a time to, you can experiment a little bit. You can play with some things. You can, um, you know, start to implement, you know, some of your off-season studies and things that you may, um, you know, have done some research on and see how it fits and works through, work through some of those kinks. So, you know, Springs critical. Um, you know, I think those are the first steps of identifying. And then you really start to build your identity through camp. You know, you really start to find out who you're going to be as a team through camp. And a lot of it is, um, I mean, all of, I mean, most of it is personnel driven, you know, what personnel gives us the best opportunity to be successful. How do we get our five best skilled players on the field together and what things can we do with them that, um, present challenges to defenses. And so, um, that process is ongoing. It starts, you know, really when we get back here in January and, you know, it's emphasized right now. And then, you know, as camp comes, you, know, you start to hone in on who you're going to be. And rolling in through the spring right now, a couple weeks into spring practice, Tommy Reese, the offensive coordinator, and the Fighting Irish. We're going to take a timeout when we come back. Paul Maneri is going to join me. We're going to relive some of the uh, fun of the 2002 College World Series team. This is the 20th anniversary of that squad, and they're going to be celebrating a reunion coming up here in about a month at Notre Dame. Budweiser's weekday sports beat brought to you by Budweiser, the king of beers, locally distributed by United Beverage Company of South Bend. Sports fans, this bun's for you. Midland Engineering Company, beginning their second century of quality roofing experience. Tim Growl State Farm Insurance, save money on home and auto insurance with Tim. Call 574-232-9981. Barnaby's of Mishawaka and Granger, serving our community while serving Michiana's most favorite pizza since 1978. The Food Bank of Northern Indiana, Hunger's a Story We Can End. Find out how at feedindiana.org. The Mishawaka Education Foundation, granting a better future. And Wings, etc. Grill and Pub with 14 Michiana area locations. Stop in today or order online at togo.wingsetc.com. We'll talk with Paul Maneri next on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Paul Maneri having a final chat with Joe Thaman before Joe steps into the batter's box. Notre Dame trailing 3-2. to two. The Irish have come from behind 21 times to win this year. Can they do it for a 22nd time? Turn on the Jets, Steve Stanley. Back to the wall it goes. Steve Stanley will slide in safely with a one-out triple. And Notre Dame has the tying run at third base. Goldman lines it up the middle and the game is tied. We're tied at three in a brand new ball game. Breaking ball. Slam to right. That one going back. And it is. Well, it has been 20 years since Paul Maneri led Notre Dame to the College World Series, and uh, that, of course, was uh, part of that uh, fantastic ninth inning against the Rice Owls in an elimination game at the College World Series in 2022. And uh, happy, as always, to be joined by the one and only Paul Maneri. How are we doing today, Paul? Well, Sean, let me tell you, listening to those radio calls from 20 years ago that you did still brings tears to my eyes and makes my body go numb, I'm telling you. <laughs> Seems like it was just yesterday, some of the most special Man. moments of my personal life, I can tell you that. It does. I mean, it's like when when the calendar flipped around and I went 20 years, it's, it's like, it's, I mean, and it's got to be, it, that has to happen to you all the time as 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 
as many teams as you've coached and as many different players as you've worked with, I'm sure you've got to just kind of sit there every now and then <laughs> and think the same thing, you know, just like, where did it, where did all that time go? Isn't that the truth, Sean? I mean, at times it makes me feel very old, but uh, <laughs> I tell you, I, I was the luckiest guy in the world to do exactly what I wanted to do with my life for 39 years. I got to be a head coach in college and those 12 years I spent at Notre Dame will always be the most special time of my life, taking that team to the College World Series. Really, not even just that one year, you know, the, the years leading up to that, the four years with Aaron Heilman and Danny Tamayo and Alec Porzell, they were not able to be a part of that team, but they sure felt like it. Brant Dust, Alan Green, the years before, and then the years after, you know, that we just had so many wonderful kids. And uh, every time I think about those days, it just, like I said, brings a smile to my face, and I just feel like the luckiest guy in the world that have had the privilege of, of being the baseball coach at Notre Dame for 12 years. Well, and that's, you know, I think that because that team got to the College World Series, that's the one that we always think about. But there were guys on that team, and, and we've talked about this before. I, I had you on back in the summer right after you retired, and we talked a little bit about the uh, the Notre Dame team, of course, last year that, that went to Starkville, Mississippi, to, uh, to play Mississippi State in the Super Regional, and your team in 2000 went there, battled their way into the championship round, came up a little bit short. You got to host a regional the next year in 2001, end the season with the tying run standing at third base in that game. And, and so 2002 was, was a culmination of a lot of things, wasn't it? It really was. And, uh, you know, we finally were able to kick the door in in fact, I was playing golf this morning with somebody, and I, and I told him that, you know, even though, uh, you know, we, we went to the World Series, I think the most special moment of the year was when we won the Big East Tournament and beat Rutgers in an extra inning game in the championship game right. because it really got the monkey off our back. You know, we had had so many good teams, won the regular season championship, made it to the finals of the t conference tournament, had a heartbreaking loss here and there. And, you know, you just felt like, you know, when are we going to win this conference tournament? And I feel like when we won the tournament that year and we beat, beat like I said, we beat Rutgers in 10 innings when Stavisky hit a ball in the left field corner and Solman scored from first base. Yeah. I felt like, like the, the gorilla got off our back. And from that point on, our players just played so relaxed and confident. You know, we went to, uh, we hosted the regional not only did we beat Ohio State twice, but we sandwiched those wins with probably the greatest single-game performance of any team I've ever coached in my life when we beat South Alabama 25-1. to 1. They were the number one seed. You remember that game, I'm sure, Sean. Oh, we had absolutely. 32 hits and, and only gave up one hit. Grant Johnson pitched a one-hit complete game. We had 32 hits, yep. including 14 for extra bases and seven home runs. And, we, you know, we zipped through the regional, and then, of course, we went down to Tallahassee where we played the, the unequivocally number one team in the country on a 25-game winning streak, and we beat them twice down there and uh, went to Omaha and then had that great win that you described with some of those radio calls against the new number one team in the country, Rice. So, you know, at times I think back, and, I, and I, I'm really kind of upset that we didn't win the whole thing because those kids had some special qualities about them, and Unfortunately, we had two heartbreaking losses to Stanford out in Omaha. But yep. what a year and what what an era, really. Well, 
you know, you mentioned that Big East tournament, and I was trying to think because again, you had never won the Big East tournament before. You had you'd finished first in the regular season and, and had regular season conference championships. I, I'm I was trying to remember how how confident did you feel that you were even going to get an NCAA bid if you didn't win the Big East tournament? Oh, I felt very confident we were going to get a bid. Uh, I mean, we started out the season nine and ten, right? And that's kind of our starting lineup was hurt. I right. mean, Thaman was hurt. Solman was hurt. We lost two shortstops and had to put Javi Sanchez in it at short, who hadn't played shortstop even in high school. Right. Andy Bushy was hurt. Paulo Tool was hurt. Brian Stavisky was hurt. Uh, the only guys that weren't hurt were Stanley, Kenny Meyer, uh, I think Chris Billmeyer. And only because the, those guys played so great that we were even nine and 10. I remember Sean, we were on the bus heading to the airport at O'Hare to fly to Omaha, and the writer from USA Today newspaper called me to do an article about the Irish, and he and he asked me. He said, "What were you thinking? Were you thinking about Omaha when you were nine and ten? <laughs> and, and I said, "You want to know the truth of what I was thinking?" And he said, "Yes." I said, "I was really happy we had won nine games at that point. <laughs> we were the walking wounded. I mean, if Stanley and Kenny Meyer." And Chris Billmeyer weren't playing out of their heads. We, we wouldn't even have won nine games. But we had some horrific injuries. And then finally, when everybody got healthy, after that 9-10 and 10 start, we went 41-8 and eight the rest of the way. And by the way, after we won that Big East tournament in 2002, we ended up winning five straight, which had never yeah. been done before. But once we, it was like once we got the monkey off our back and knew what it felt like, you know, we went to that Big East tournament every year and, and won it. And, and so we never had to sweat out Selection Day for the NCAA tournament. Paul Maneri with us, the uh, former head coach of the Notre Dame baseball team, just retired at LSU last year after a Hall of Fame career and, of course, led the 2002 Notre Dame team to the College World Series and reliving the uh, the 20th anniversary of that, some memories of that. What there were so many, you know, Steve Stanley was the Big East Player of the Year and All-American that year, and you rattled off a bunch of those other names. What what was it, do you think, how was that team able to have that kind of resolve and turn things around the way they were able to that you were just described there? Well, first of all, let me say this, Sean. I thought the 2001 team was the best team I ever had. Yeah. Aaron Hellman was a senior, and he went 15-0. and in 15 starts, Danny Tamayo was a senior, number two pitcher, went 10 and one. Alec Porzell was our starting shortstop and our three-hole hitter as a senior. That team was that team was phenomenal mm-hmm. all year. And then we had two injuries right before the the regional. Steve Solman got hit by a pitch at the Big East tournament, broke his hand, right. and Chris Billmeyer had a had a, a nerve problem with you know down his leg, and he and he couldn't play for about two or three weeks. Our kids played so courageously in that regional tournament the year before, and when we got upset in the finals by, like you said, we had the tying run at third, um, and Florida International beat us. I'm telling you, I was so distraught after the game and after you know the season ended because I thought that was the best team we'd ever had, and I just remember you know driving into my driveway two days later, and my phone rang and it was my college coach Ron Maestri. And, and he gave me the most encouraging words. Uh, he was my coach at the University of New Orleans. And he said, you know, in 1979, that was when I was a senior in college, we had a great team at UNO, and we lost in the regional at Mississippi State, ironically. 
And I remember Ron May Street being so down in the dumps, and he called me and he said, you know, when we lost in 1979, he said, I thought I'd never take a team to Omaha because that was the best team I'd ever had. He said, but a few years later, 1984, we went to Omaha with a team not quite as good as, as the 79 team. And then he told me, he says, you're going to go to Omaha when people least expect it. <laughs> well, the next year, the next year, you know, we had three of our four starting pitchers were freshmen. Grant Johnson, Chris Niesel, and John Axford were right. all freshmen. Pete Oakley was the only upperclassman in our rotation. And, and those kids, because of how quickly they came along as freshmen, Brian O'Connor was our pitching coach, did a phenomenal job with those guys. But, but the, the core of our position player team, Stanley and O'Toole, and Kenny Meyer and Solman and all those guys that I have already mentioned, Paul O'Toole, they, they had such determination and such confidence in themselves that even when we started out 9 and 10, they realized it was because we had had so many injuries. And once those guys came back and were healthy, they knew that we had a great team. And we just took it one day at a time, and including the two losses in Omaha, like I said, we went 41 and eight the rest of the way. I mean, we played great baseball for a long period of time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And that you know, like thinking about, the, I was thinking about this, that pitching that you just mentioned. Those guys on the staff, Niesel and and Grant Johnson, were two really good freshmen that year. But like Niesel missed a good chunk of the season with mono, so he was out for a while. JP Gagne starts the season kind of as a midweek starter. He ends up being your closer with that big changeup yeah. at the end of the year. And through the whole thing, you know, like you've got the conference player of the year in Steve Stanley, position players, and a couple other guys who made all conference. You had no all conference pitchers even on a team that ends up in Omaha. Yeah. That's just amazing to me. Well, I, I vividly remember making that decision to move Ganya from starting rotation into the bullpen, and we were able to do that because of Niesel's uh, returning to health after mono. JP's last start, he pitched a complete game, two to one victory over BYU, and he was outstanding. Yeah. And after you know, a couple of days after the game, I brought him into the office and I said, JP, you're you're pitching great, and I said the missing thing that we need for this team is to have somebody that can close games. We can't win a championship without having a closer. And you, with that great changeup, you have the best chance because you, you're composed, you're poised, you're a competitor, you're confident, and you've got an out pitch. And I said, I really want to move you to the closer's role. And, of course, JP being the most unselfish kid you can imagine, he was all in for it. Well, how did, how did we go to Omaha, Sean? You remember those calls, the ninth <laughs> inning against Florida State, 3-1 right. to one lead. And oh um, we, we go out to the field. Hey, listen, we're going out to the field. We're three outs away from going to Omaha. Man, I'm in the dugout. My hands are sweating. I'm pacing in the dugout, and I can't even hardly watch because, you know, I'm so nervous about it. And I look up as JP throws the first pitch to the first batter of the ninth inning. I look up just as he's delivering the pitch. And it's about 92 on the knees uh, on the corner. And I thought to myself, hey, this could be good. This ninth <laughs> inning could be really good. And then, of course, JP struck out the side. It, it took about five minutes, thank God. I don't think I would have survived. It took five minutes for him to strike out the side and send us to Omaha. And what a moment that was for everybody. I mean, he was amazing in Tallahassee when you sit back and, and think about it. he In in the first win, in the, in the opening win, well, for – for one, Florida State had won 25 in a row, and, and as you said, they're ranked number one in the country going in, and 
He ends up, what, a three-inning save <laughs> where he retires nine in a row, and then he, he, he just mows them down in the, in the decider, one, two, three, to go to Omaha in the deciding game, in game three as well. Well, that first game, as you mentioned, uh, I, I'll never forget, you know, we had won the regional. Back then, they didn't have the bracket set up in advance. Right. So they reshuffled the deck after the Super Regionals, and, and the number one seed was Florida State, and they matched us up against them. So they must have assumed we were the 16th seed, right? Right. And, um, and so when I, I got word that we were going to Florida State, I remember meeting with the team in the, in the uh, locker room, and they're all sitting on their stools in front of the locker room, and I'm pacing in front of them, and I said, Tell us this is your deal. We're going to Florida State. We're going to play uh, Tallahassee. We're going to Tallahassee to play Florida State. They're the number one team in the country. They've won 25 in a row. They won the regular season. They won the tournament title. You know, they ha they didn't go to Omaha last year, and they hadn't been uh, there hadn't been two consecutive years of them not going to Omaha since like 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier, right? So I looked them up, looked at them all in the eye, and I said seems to me we got them right where we want them. <laughs> and everybody smiled. And I said, we're going to go down there, and we're going to whip these guys. And I'll tell you why we're going to whip them, because we're better than they are. And I really believed in my heart that we were a better team. So when we went down there in that first game, and they're, you know, they, they, they were unbeatable, and, and we go out and Stavisky had a two-run homer in the first inning. We jumped out to a 4 5 nothing lead. They came back and tied the game. And then we exploded, and I think we, we, we scored uh, six or so an, unanswered runs. I think we were up like 11 to 5. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, J.P. pitched three great uh, innings, you know. And uh, I, I'll tell you, after the game, I was meeting with the media, and, you know, I tried to be friendly with the media and very respectful. And somebody asked the question, you know, about, you know, what an upset this game was. I remember slapping my hand on the table and saying, Hey, this was no upset. We came here <laughs> expecting to win. And I got up and walked out. <laughs> and the people were like stunned. <laughs> and I'll tell you, if it didn't rain the next day, I think we would have beaten them the next day. But uh, we had to, they got a day to kind of regroup. Right. They, they barely beat us, even though they, they, they got a lot of hits in the, on the, you know, the, the, the second game on Sunday. But then we went out and beat them on Monday three to one and I remember after the game meeting with the media and one of the reporters asked uh you know are you surprised that your team could come down here and beat this great Florida State team two out of three games and you remember what I said I said yeah I'm really surprised I honestly thought we were going to win it two straight that's right <laughs> I was pretty cocky back then. <laughs> those guys didn't know what to think this little old northern Notre Dame team coming down there Tallahassee uh, just completely, you know, obviously uh, disrupting everything in their world. That that Stavisky home run you talked about, Paul, he hits it over. They they essentially have like a green monster type, you know, wall in right. It was in right field instead of left field. And right. it was just a gargantuan shot, as you obviously know. How much do you and think that to, set the tone for the weekend? Oh, they and behind that, they had a circus across the That's street. That's right. Remember? That's right. And Oh, when he hit that ball, well, Stanley, I think, led off the game with a base hit, and then Solman lined one out, I think, at the wall, and they were lucky that that wasn't a home runner off the wall. Uh, remember, Solman had gone six for seven with seven RBIs against South Alabama and hit 
two home runs, and he smoked one in there. Center fielder was lucky to have caught it in the gap. And then Stavisky gets up and hits one about 450 feet. And I just <laughs> think we, we set the tone right then and there that, hey, we came down here to play baseball. We're not, we're not down here, you know, in awe of anybody. And, uh, oh, it was just – I had such great confidence in our players, Sean, like, because, as you said, that it was a culmination of a period of time. And we had had – you know, we had played great the two years before in the regionals. Played, I was so proud of the team, even though we didn't win the regionals. They had played so great, and I felt so bad for them. And I knew that they were coming back for that last year with such determination to get over the hump, and, and we did. Well, and I played those highlights of that elimination game against Rice in Omaha, and Brian Stavisky ends up with a walk-off home run. You, you've got – you start at the bottom of the order. you got Joe Thaman leading off, and then you go to the top, Stanley Solman, mm -hmm. Stavisky. You're down a run, obviously. Do you remember anything you were, you were thinking, anything you were saying oh. before that ninth inning? Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember everything. I remember how it was feeling. Of course. I remember every pitch. You know, Joe, Joe uh, Thayman led off, and, he, and they were facing this left-hander Crowder from Rice who had mm -hmm. not given up a run in all of the postseason between their conference tournament, regional, super regional, and now we're in the World Series. And they had just lost 2-1 to one to Texas in the first game, and Crowder had not pitched, and they were saving, they were saving Crowder, okay? So we, the game started. They pitched Philip Humber against us, who also was a first-round draft choice, yep. and we scratched a couple of runs against him. And, uh, you know, uh, but we were losing going to the ninth inning. Crowder had been in the game for three or four innings, and he was carving us up with all our left-handed hitters. And he faced Thayman, who was left-handed, the first batter. He popped up the first, and then Stanley's up, another left-handed hitter. And uh, the count goes 3-0, and and I gave Steve Stanley a take sign. And then on 3-1, I gave him another take sign, and Crowder popped two strikes right in there. Well, Stanley steps out of the batter's box, restraps his batting gloves, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is going to be really good. You know, <laughs> this is going to be a great battle between Stanley and this really outstanding pitcher. And I think Stanley fouled off three or four balls on full count, mm -hmm. and then he hit one right into the – pierced the wind right in the, in the, uh, the gap between, right, uh, between the right fielder and center fielder. And I'm waving Stanley. Of course, there's one out. If we can get him to third base, He's coming around second, and I'm waving him to third. Sean, I'm making deals with God that if he just lets Stanley be safe at third base, I promise I'll never ask for anything ever again. <laughs> so he slides into third base safely. I give him a big hug. And then I remember saying to Steve at third base, I said, okay, Solman's up. I said, there's not a person in the world that I would rather be up right now than Steve Solman, except yep. for you, of course, the guy standing at third base. <laughs> That's right. And Solman lines the base, set up the middle to tie the game. And then Stavisky comes up, and the wind's blowing in from right field. And, and he just smokes one against the mm -hmm. wind into the stands. And I just, I just went numb. You know, I was so happy for our players to – it's one thing to get to Omaha. It's another thing to actually win a game when you get there. Right. And, uh, and then the next night, you know, we came back to play Stanford again. And I just thought our players were so ready to play. And we gave up a wind-blown home run in the first inning to Sam Fold from Stanford, and we just never quite could get over the hump, and we lost a heartbreaking game to them. We were behind the whole game by a run. Every time we'd score, they'd score again, and, and we ended up losing the close game. But I was just so proud of that team, and I told them, you know what, I think on our fifth, re fifth reunion, five-year reunion, 
you know, I'm now at now at LSU, but it, I don't care how many championships we win or how many times we go to Omaha at LSU. The most special thing in my career will always be taking the Notre Dame Fighting Irish to to the College World Series in 2002. And again, it's it's amazing, but uh, this is uh, year 20 now since that has happened. The 20 year reunion, and you guys have got uh, a little. Uh, your reunion coming up here, what, in about a, a month of the Boston College weekend at the end of April. You guys are going to gather and and a uh, little festivities oh, going on over there. I'm so, oh, I'm so excited, Sean. You know, 22 of the 30 players have, have confirmed that they're going to be able to come back for the reunion. 20 years. It's, it's hard to believe it's been that long, you know. Um, but I just can't wait to see everybody and their families. You know, Sean, as a coach, you know, you have – you're, you're tasked with putting together good teams and winning championships. And, you know, but for me, it was always about the development of the players, as not, as base, not only as baseball players, but as people, and preparing them for life after college. And when I look around at all these players that played on that team, I see, you know, wonderful husbands, great fathers. You know, they, they're all doing well in their own uh, walks of life of what they've decided to do. And you know, I knew that they would all be successful. It was just a special – all the kids I ever coached in Notre Dame were so special. You know, they just had something about them. And, and uh, you know, we're going to get together, have some fun, and hopefully we can inspire the 2022 version of the Fighting Irish to uh, let's go. It's time to get back to Omaha, you know, Absolutely. 20 years later. I remember after we lost the last game against Stanford, I did tell the media there. I've actually made a promise that it would not be another forty-five years before the fighting Irish <laughs> came back to Omaha. And here we're looking up, and it's, it's twenty years that. already. Yeah, so, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we need these guys to, to to make me not be a liar to the media that year. Absolutely, they were knocking on the door last year. Really, you know, they've hit a little bit of a speed bump. But again, you you know, you guys proved, if nothing else, in two thousand two, you can hit some speed bumps and still have a really great year. And I'm sure they'll get it figured out over there uh, here pretty quickly. Paul Maneri, the uh, Hall of Fame head coach and uh, former Notre Dame coach, former LSU coach, won a national championship in 2009 and, of course, led that great 2002 Notre Dame team to the College World Series. It is uh, it is always fun, Paul, and I know you've got to get going, so I'll let you uh, get rolling, but look forward to seeing you here pretty soon. Sean, it's great to be with you. I miss you much and uh, miss everybody in South Bend. I'm glad my son is up there, so I get always have an excuse to come back and visit. And We'll look forward to seeing everybody up there in about a month or so. Absolutely. Sounds good. Take care, Paul. Great talking to you as always. All right. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Yep, absolutely. Paul Maneri, Hall of Fame head coach at Notre Dame and LSU. We'll take a timeout. Sports Center update is coming up on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Listening to Budweiser's weekday sports beat with Sean Styers on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. Who wants to have some fun? Rapid Fire starts now on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. And now your host, Sean Styers. Along with Jesse Styers tonight, it is rapid fire on Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Thanks again to Paul Maneri for uh, for coming on. And it's, he's one of those guys who we could uh, 
probably block the whole two-hour show out and still not get everything <laughs> in. But uh, always great talking to Paul. And uh, Jesse, you were, of course, uh, just a little tyke when that 2002 team went to the College World Series. But, you know, you were out there at the ballpark a lot and all that kind of stuff. Do you, do you remember much about that team? You know, when I thought about it, I didn't really uh, recall a lot of like in-game situations or games themselves. As I was, like you said, I was like five, maybe going on six. Um, but I more or less remembered the players that I really liked. Like you said, I was still kind of at the stadium, around the park, around the team. Um, you know, some of those guys that I really enjoyed were Steve Stanley, uh, Steve Solman, Javier Sanchez, um, Brian Savitsky, guys like that. Yeah. Um, and what was what was cool too is. Um, Oh, crap. I remember also uh, that just the upset in the Super Regional against Florida State and how big of a deal that was because it was at Florida State. Um, I'm pretty sure Florida State was the number one overall seed at that time. They were, um, yeah. And they took took two of three at their place, and it was just a major, major, major upset and that no one really saw some coming. Um, so, like, I remember that, and I remember those games. But outside of that and kind of those players I mentioned, that's really – all that I can uh, recall. Do you remember why you didn't get to go to Omaha for that trip? No. I you don't. don't. You don't remember? No. So, you know this that that was that was my second season doing uh, radio for Notre Dame, of course, second year living here, and your grandparents who live in Kansas had not been out. You know, they hadn't been out here before and so they planned a trip and they were flying in and they were coming that first weekend of the college world series and so because they had you know the airfare booked and all that kind of stuff and obviously you don't know you know if you're going until you win the games and all those different kind of things it couldn't be rescheduled so you got to stay home <laughs> and uh, visit with your grandparents while I went to Omaha so there you go. You know, looking back on it, I, I, obviously I don't remember it, but it would have been really cool to go. So I, I yeah. think in that situation you might have, you know, won the trade-off. Well, and as, as fate had it, a few years later when Paul Maneri took his first LSU team to the College World Series in 2008, we were out there that weekend. Your, your travel baseball team was playing in a tournament out there as well. They always have tournaments and stuff. And so you got to, you know – see him and and uh, some of the other guys Javi Sanchez who you mentioned was on that staff as well so that was kind of a cool little experience a few years later that you still got to experience out there in Omaha yeah that was a, a ton of fun and every every experience and being around that ballpark and even the new one um, it was a ton of fun um, it was it was just the atmosphere and all the things going all around going on around the stadium was also part of the experience and it just made it Overall, super fun. The College World Series, uh, no matter if you have uh, a team in the race, is a very cool experience yeah. uh, no matter what. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, let's get into this new NFL overtime rule that the owners voted on today. So, new overtime rule for the NFL. Owners voted to give each team a possession in overtime, but it's only for the postseason. Regular season's going to keep the current rules, where if the team that gets the ball first scores a touchdown – Game's over. So do you buy or sell this new overtime rule change? You know, I, we kind of talked about this prior. I actually buy this rule. I am a big fan 
of the other team, especially at that point in the season. Uh, you've played 17 games up to this point, potentially, you know, saying that this is a first round playoff game at minimum. Um, and, and obviously the, the degree gets more severe as you go down or, or keep winning more games of how important it is. Um, but there's just no reason um, that a team should not possess the ball that late in the season um, when a, a coin flip has a large uh, a say in who is going to get the ball first. So, yes, I agree with this rule, and it's really baffling to me, the people who are opposed to it and saying, oh, let's negate or take away you know, defense even more. But like I said, it, it, there's so many good offenses this day and I, these days, um, and I realize that uh, you should, you know, good defense should be rewarded. Um, but there's just no reason in the end, in my opinion, that the other team uh, should not touch the ball if if that opening possession goes for a touchdown. I completely agree. And this is the way that I would have done it. And apparently the owners, there was no way the owners were going to institute this rule in the regular season. And I know that there's some people that want to see that, you know, for the same reason, you know, it's like, well, it's it's a game that still counts that, you know, you should still get the ball. But they shortened the overtime period like five years ago from 15 minutes to 10 and they have the current rule I think that they you know they're fine with regular season games excuse me I got a little cough there they're fine with regular season games ending in a tie if that's what it takes because they don't want these games you know, going to four hours and, you know, continuing on and on and on in the regular season. And there's player safety that plays into that as well. The longer you play, the more fatigued you are, the greater risk for injury and that kind of thing. So I'm fine with them keeping it the way it is in the regular season. They want to keep those games moving and not have them go double and triple overtime. But I, I think that this is perfect, that they're doing this in the postseason so that they're guaranteeing both teams have the ball and making it as fair as possible because these are, uh, you know, obviously even more important games once you get to the postseason. So since the new overtime rule guarantees that each team gets an overtime possession, the coin toss has new meaning. It's not automatic that you you know, would take the ball first. Do you like kind of that aspect of some strategy now that goes along with the, the coin toss and, you know, what you're going to do if, if you win the coin toss? Yeah, um, I definitely, you know, kind of going back a little bit, I, I like the fact that you clarified and talked about, yes, that, that this is only postseason because um, that's something I definitely agree with. Regular season games shouldn't be touched. Uh, I like the aspect of how those are controlled. Those are for mainly player safety and getting games over and not having to play longer than you actually need. Now, for the part of this, the, this part of the question about the aspect uh, of strategy, I really do like that too, um, because it, it allows you to, to really kind of play more of a chess game. Do you take the ball first? Uh, do you take or do you kick it uh, to the to the opponent first? Right. And my my me myself is uh, I, I am more on the let the other team get the ball first. Let us play back on defense have the, the pressure kind of applied to them to start. Uh, and so you can sit back and kind of see, you know, what you have to do. Okay, right. do, do you give up a touchdown? Now you know that you need to respond with a touchdown. Uh, so now you have the, the liberty of going for it on every fourth down. Yep. And then also the, the other side of that is if they if they just get a field goal, then same thing that you, you know you have the field goal in your back pocket of, okay, I have four downs to get it downfield and at least kick a field goal. But if I score a touchdown here, you know, it, it's game is over. So – 
I really like the aspect of that side, you know, that aspect of going on defense first. Yeah. I know there's other people who think differently, uh, but that just plays into the question of, you know, there's more strategy now involved. Yeah, because like in the college, even though the college overtime is obviously different, the format, because you know going into a college overtime that both teams are going to have the ball at least once, that strategy comes into it. And pretty much everyone who wins the coin toss you know, in a college game is going to opt to to put the other team on offense first for that that you just outlined. So I really like this. I think that it changes things in a variety of ways for the NFL. And I, I think it's going to be I, I think it's I think it's great for everybody. I like the fact that they've done this. It, it's like amazing that how long they've been playing NFL football and it took this long to get to this point, you know, because forever it was just sudden death and Sometimes you win the coin toss, you go down and score, and then other times you get Chargers Dolphins, you know, where you where you're playing, you know, overtime forever. So I, I think it's really cool. Now there was one other proposal that the Titans made, a, a modified overtime rule that uh was not voted on. I guess they withdrew it before it got to the vote, but it would have allowed a team to win on the opening possession of overtime if they score a touchdown and then convert a two-point attempt. So it wasn't enough just to score the touchdown. You had to also convert a two-point attempt. What would you have thought of that one? Would you have would you have favored that over what they ended up with, which is guaranteeing both teams get the ball? So you score a touchdown, you know, you you get a two-point conversion, then you're the automatic winner. You know, I think the reason why that they didn't go completely through with this one uh, is that you, you kind of have to go with the base first of what they what they ended up getting, and that was that the, you know that both teams were guaranteed a possession. When you add the two point attempt, then you're already uh, assuming that they're going to say yes to each team gets a possession, and that a two point conversion will will be able to, I guess you could say, trump that and ultimately end the game. So. I like the idea of them not going full blown yet and kind of seeing how each possession goes. Um, but 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 for the two point attempt itself, I actually do like this idea. You see um, a lot of teams nowadays going for two to win games instead of going to overtime. Uh, mainly in the NFL, you saw it a lot with uh, the Ravens last year. It seemed like Harbaugh and Lamar Jackson were rolling the dice every other game. Um, but I am a fan of that because you do have to – uh, in that in that instance, get another play for a score, and it is tremendously hard for offenses, just as it is for defenses. Uh, in that situation, you know, on the goal line, uh, with you know just a few yards between that and the end zone. So I think it does show enough skill to be kind of that trump that I was talking about, and ultimately in the game because you're scoring twice, uh, almost. I guess you could say to win the game. Yeah, I I kind of like it. Like if they hadn't. If they hadn't ultimately done what they did, which is just say both teams can have the ball, I kind of like this. And, you know, I, other than the stupid rule that, that college football implemented last year where they entered, you know, you go to the two-point shootout <laughs> kind of format, I don't know why they don't just do this to begin with. Just say, okay, both teams get the ball. You know, I'm talking about college now. Both teams get the ball. But after every touchdown, you got to also, you know, do, attempt a two-point try rather than just kick the extra point. I think that would have been a better and more natural way for college football, you know, because their whole goal with this 
two-point shootout was to try to not have these games that last forever, I think they would have been better off doing something like this. So I kind of like the idea. I, I do like the idea better that the you know that the NFL went with, which is just just to say both teams guaranteed the ball at least once. If you're still tied after both teams have the ball, it's basically sudden death after that. But I think this would be a good idea for college football to say you score a touchdown, you attempt a two-point conversion. You know, I, I think that that would have been a good solution for college football. We're going to take a timeout. When we come back, we've got more rapid-fire topics, college basketball, and more on the way on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Find your style with Patriot Lighting from Menards and save with 11% off everything. Choose from more than 1,000 Patriot Lighting fixtures. They come in a variety of unique styles and finishes to give your home a fresh, updated look. Save today with 11% off all interior and exterior Patriot Lighting. Start saving with 11% off everything now at Menards. Good through April 2nd. Savings are a mail-in rebate. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Save big money at your 401k is likely one of your most important assets, but it's only one part of a comprehensive retirement strategy. Edward Jones can help you understand how your retirement assets fit into your entire retirement picture so you can work toward meeting your unique retirement goals. Contact Mary Vig, your South Bend Edward Jones financial advisor at 1290 East Ireland Road in South Bend or at 574-299-8921 to learn more. Edward Jones, making sense of investing, member SIPC. Message. Hey, man, it's Devin. You know, from that time you accidentally emailed me because you thought I was a different Devin. <laughs> oh, and your email signature said confidential. If you receive this in error, please delete. <laughs> That's so you. Anyway, a boat. When are we set in sail, Captain? <laughs> when you get a boat, you also get new friends. Make sure Progressive's one of them and get coverage today for as little as $100 a year. Oh, and uh, no, you did not receive this message in error. <laughs> Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Annual premium for basic liability policy not available in all states. Anywhere fans go to cheer on their team, there are behind-the-scenes MVPs, ensuring everything is game day ready. We see you, Joe, fixing seats so every fan can enjoy every game. And Allie, who keeps her stadium running smoothly from the moment the first game starts to the last play of the season. At Granger, you're our MVPs, and we're always here for you with supplies and solutions for every industry and 24-7 customer support. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. DQ presents... Picture this. You stand before the awe-inspiring new signature stack burger menu at DQ and your mouth wonders, where have you been all my life? That's five taste bud tempting cheeseburgers with 100% real seasoned beef. You peek at the loaded A1 stack burger with two premium sauces, then the flamethrower stack burger with tongue tingling jalapeno bacon. Then you realize moments like these are exactly why we have the DQ signature stack burger menu. DQ, happy tastes good. Get it delivered at DQ.com. We're planning a trip to Spain later this year. But our Spanish is... It's pretty bad. So we're using Babbel. Babbel's conversation-based method teaches you real-life words and phrases. And with Babbel's interactive bite-sized lessons, you'll remember what you learned. There's no easier way to learn another language. Ahora hablamos español. He just said, now we speak Spanish. Babbel, language for life. Now try Babbel for free. Just go to Babbel.com. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Hi, this is Joe Cordell with the law firm Cordell & Cordell. When the prospect of divorce becomes a reality, you need a partner that you can count on. If you're a man in this situation, 
consider contacting Cordell & Cordell. We've helped men navigate complex legal matters for 30 years. Contact Cordell & Cordell to schedule an appointment with one of our firm's Indianapolis area attorneys. 101 West Ohio Street, Suite 1100, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46204. Online at CordellCordell.com. Now, the latest forecast from the WSBT Weather Center. Skies will be cloudy tonight with a 60% chance of rain showers. Lows will drop into the upper 30s. For Wednesday, that 60% chance of showers continues with a few storms possible. Mild and breezy with a high of 67. A 40% chance of rain lingers for Thursday with falling temperatures as we'll start in the 50s and then end the day in the 30s. I'm WSBT 22 meteorologist Abby Wepler. Rapid Fire and Budweiser's weekday sports beat continue on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT along with Jesse Styers, Sean Styers. So, Jess, it's been a lot made of the fact that the UConn women got to host this past weekend's regional in Bridgeport, Bridgeport, Connecticut as the number two seed. And, of course, last night they beat the number one seed, North Carolina State, in double overtime to advance to the Final Four with a largely partisan UConn crowd, as you would imagine. So do you have a problem with the number two seed hosting the regional? And if so, what would be your solution to this? You know, I absolutely have a big problem with the number two seed hosting. Um, I actually didn't realize this until you posed the question. Um, there's no reason. That <laughs> you paid a lot of attention, has... huh? Even though, you know, I was out there <laughs> in Connecticut over the weekend. <laughs> I guess I didn't realize Bridgeport is where the university and the basketball arena is that UConn, the, the University of Connecticut, well, is at. It shows it's it's about an hour and a half away. It's about an hour and a half, you know, drive from stores just because you have to go on Podunk roads to get in, in and out of stores. So, okay, but still, it's basically in the backyard. Of, yes, you know, it's Connecticut. UConn. It's Connecticut. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I do have a problem with this. I think that it's absolutely ridiculous. What's this point of being the better team in the regular season and the difference between a one and two seed if you're just going to end up funneling down and it being a home game and not only a home game at an important time, but we're talking about the Elite Eight to go to the Final Four and a double overtime game. You can't tell me that, you know, that this didn't play some difference or some advantage uh, to, to benefit UConn. In this situation, I think that absolutely, uh, you know, I don't really understand uh, going into what my solution would be now is I don't understand why women in general get host locations like this. Uh, I think that they should follow the men's format and, you know, all teams go to specific regions and, and no team should actually be able to host no matter what round. Um, and then you avoid problems like this altogether. There's no reason, uh, like I said, that, that NC State should have had to play basically a home game, a home game against Connecticut in, in chance of, you know, going to the final four. Well, and to give you an idea, having obviously, like I said, been out there last weekend, it's roughly, you know, based on the, you know, the, the GPS and all that stuff, roughly an hour and a half drive from stores down to Bridgeport from the airport in Hartford to where Notre Dame and I believe Indiana, the air, the general area where those two teams stayed, we actually had to go past Bridgeport uh, like another almost half hour. And if you know if, if traffic is bad, it's even worse than that. We stayed in Stamford, which is farther south 
along the coast there in Connecticut. So the bus ride from the airport, this is after flying a couple of hours, the bus ride from the airport is, you know, just as far to the hotel as, you know, Connecticut would have to to go to. And then doing the Notre Dame, calling the Notre Dame North Carolina State game Saturday, which was the game, the first game of the of the, the regionals that day, UConn and Indiana were playing after that. So we're doing the game sometime in the first half. The UConn women walk into the arena and they sit down, you know, in their their chairs by the baseline and they get the all of a sudden I wasn't, you know, paying attention to who was walking in. All of a sudden this huge ovation goes up from the crowd and then you look over and here's UConn filtering in. And that's in a game they're not even playing in. And it's just, you know, to answer your question why they don't do it like the men, they do it because of attendance issues because the fan bases aren't going to travel quite as well as you know the, the the women's game is obviously gaining in popularity but they're not going to travel as well but that's also why the NCAA is completely willing to do this kind of thing to put a number one seed in a region at a complete disadvantage by playing in front of what had to have been probably a 90 to 95 percent and that might even be generous UConn partisan crowd because you're playing it in Connecticut even though it's not their home floor, you're playing in front of their home crowd in a in an arena that seats around eight thousand, a little more than eight between eight and nine thousand. Most of it is UConn fans, and I think it's ridiculous. The Deb Antonelli plan, I think, is probably the best idea, and that's just you know her her idea. And she's Deb, of course, is an analyst for uh, both men's and women's basketball. Play it in Las Vegas. Play the entire Sweet Sixteen. In Las Vegas, because I don't know that you're going to be able to do neutral sites for regionals again and get a good crowd. Because like the the regional, for example, that was played in Greensboro, North Carolina, it was Creighton and a Creighton and Iowa State were playing in the first game. South Carolina was playing somebody else in the other Sweet 16 game, but that that Creighton Iowa State game in Greensboro, North Carolina was not well attended at all. I saw part of that on TV. Now, the South Carolina games, because they're so close, they got great attendance. And, you know, that's that's what the NCAA wants. And I understand, you know, there are financial aspects to this whole thing. But, you know, I think if you're really shooting for some kind of fairness where you're not going to completely disadvantage a number one seed, let alone the other teams in the region, you know, for a team that is not a number one seed, Play it all. Play the entire Sweet Sweet Sixteen in a destination city, whether it's Las Vegas or Orlando or you know some of these other places. You're gonna where you're gonna have some nice weather and some other things that fans can come and do. You know, I don't think it's a bad idea to do something like this, but I, I think it's, you know, I I think it's complete BS that 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 they're willing to let a number two seed have such a huge advantage like this. The game goes to double overtime, and you can't tell me that. You know, having a, a, a partisan crowd played any factor in that. You know, UConn's good. We all know UConn's good. North Carolina State is good as well. You had two pretty evenly matched teams, and the number two seed had a home court advantage over the number one seed. So I, I, I don't think I don't think it's good for the game if you really want to grow the game. You know, and there are there are a lot of a lot of schools that are that are investing a lot of 
you know, resources in the women's game now. I think it's time that that they uh, that they work to uh, to level level the playing field a little bit more. All right. So I saw a college basketball writer float this idea the other day. Here's what he said: What if they played conference schedules? Now we're talking men's basketball. Well, and women's for that matter, but mostly men's. This was a men's basketball writer. What if they played conference schedules? first early in the season to spike local interest during the college football season overlap and then you move the non-conference games to February and March as a build-up to the postseason and then into the conference tournaments and postseason play would you buy or sell that idea so I buy the idea of making an amendment to the schedule format but I I necessarily don't buy completely what his format was and that was put all the games non-conference games in the front um, and then, or sorry, put all the conference games to the front and the non-conference at the end of the season to play into February and March. Um, if it were up to me, my schedule format and what I think is the better solution, um, let's take an example of Notre Dame played 35 total games this past season. Of those 35, 20 were conference. So we have 20 conference games, 15 non-conference games. My schedule format would break down to be eight non-conference games to start the season. Um, and if you're in a power five, you have to have at least four of the four of those teams, four of eight, be in the power five. And then you play your 20 conference games consecutively and then finish the season with seven more non-conference games and at least four of those teams being in the power five as well. So I'm doing it, uh, putting the chunk in the middle and then splitting up the non-conference games for the beginning and end of the season. Um, and like I said, if you're in a power five conference, at least half of those games in each each segment have to be against other power five teams just to keep things interesting. Um, and, and honestly, I think it would be at the end of the season, it would give the committee a, a more clear picture of are, are, are these teams really conference strong? You know, you see the Big Ten get so many bids um, and take so many spots from teams. Um, but then, you know, like you look at it, the ACC was supposed to have a down year and there was, you know, with eight teams left, there was a potential that we could see three or four teams in the eight or in the final four. Um, so I just think that playing some of those non-conference games at the end of the season and playing other, you know, power five good teams, you give a more honest uh, yeah. breakdown of how you are going into the tournament and where teams really stand outside of just their conference. Yeah, I think you could. I don't you know, like the ACC. Remember a couple of years ago, they tried opening up the season with a conference game and all that stuff when they expanded the schedule. And I don't think that it necessarily did what they thought it was going to do. I just don't feel like. When they're when they're playing in early and mid November, I just you're never going to have the kind of buzz that football has because football is coming into the home stretch. You know you're you're figuring out who's going to be in the college football playoff and all those different things, and you got some of some more marquee football matchups. I just don't think you're ever going to truly be competing. People aren't ready for it yet. You need to ease your way into it, just like. The schools, especially the Power 5 schools, need to ease their way into the season. There's a reason you play some lesser teams early. You're, you know, you're trying to figure your lineups out and do these different things, your rotations, all these different things, and trying to find some cohesiveness. You don't want to play your most important games right away. But kind of piggybacking on what you're saying, I wouldn't mind seeing, okay, so maybe you, know, you play you know, a few of those non-conference games, and then you get into – you know, in, in in early December, you jump right into conference play then because it's really kind of staggered around. Really, January is when you get into the meat of the conference schedule. Maybe move that up into December a little bit more and then do what you're saying. 
Then at the end of the of of uh, like in February, before the conference tournaments roll around, you have some conference crossover events. Like you know, you've got the ACC Big Ten Challenge, and they kind of use that, I think, maybe to kind of generate some excitement. Well, maybe you do some of those kind of things early and late, like you do, you know, some of that in November slash the first week of December. But then you also you know, not just ACC Big Ten Challenge, but maybe you're doing ACC Pac-12 and, you know, Big Ten Pac-12, you know, those different kind of things get the Big 12 involved where you're doing some of that, like you you were talking about, in late February so that you do have a, a better idea of who some of these teams are when they're playing outside their conference because they've been in conference play for so long. So, yeah, I don't mind mixing it up, but I don't think that there's any reason to move your conference schedule into November. I don't think that's a good idea at all. Speaking of the NCAA tournament, which most needs to be a holiday? The first two days of March Madness or the day after the Super Bowl? Uh, For me, this was an easy one, and it was clearly (laughs) the day after the Super Bowl. Uh, The main reason being is that I still watch the games as I work. I'm still very productive. I have them. Uh, You know, now that I – work from home it's even easier to accomplish this because i have it on the tv and my my work area is very close to the living room so i just kind of have them going on at the same time as i'm working periodically you know look over it's something that actually helps make the work week go a little bit faster um but after a long night of football friends and all kinds of food and you know maybe a couple drinks here and there (laughs) i just think it makes more sense just makes more sense to have the following monday off no one likes to work on mondays (laughs) get a nice four-day week um, after the Super Bowl. I just I think the very clear and obvious choice here is the Super Bowl. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's the Super Bowl as well, you know, because like you said, I think that especially the last couple of years, people have gotten used to, you know, working at home or doing those different things. And, you know, you've got radios. You can find the games streaming and all that different kind of stuff. And maybe you take a – a long lunch and you know you go out and do your thing I I think it's the Super Bowl as well and you know let's be face you know let's face it because with the Super Bowl you've got Super Bowl parties and you know people are drinking your adult beverages whether it's a nice cold Budweiser or whatever it happens to be you know you've it's it's more of a party situation the night before and you need that next day <laughs> you know to to have that day off you need that that day after the Super Bowl holiday so I completely agree with what you're saying I think I still think it's the day after the Super Bowl as opposed to the first two days of March although I know there are a lot of people who uh, who think it's the March answer Le- who are yeah. I've been thinking about this for a little bit the Charles Barkley you know Kenny the Jet Smith uh, you know, the, the, the NBA on TNT crew, they've been working the NCAA tournament uh, for the past few years. Do you buy or sell that those guys doing college games, they're not doing the games themselves, but they are breaking down the games. Do you think that it has reached its expiration date? Do you think that it needs to go? Um, you know, here's what I'll say. And actually, I guess let me rephrase that. This is what I'll, I'll start with. I love the NBA on TNT crew. It plays a part of why I enjoy watching NBA games and, uh, you know, being into that type of um, Tuesday and Thursday nights. um, They put on a very, very entertaining yet uh, very 
educational. You learn a lot. You laugh a lot. Um, however, I do think that they 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 are not a fit for the college level. Um, and just watching those guys interact that that you that you brought up, or Ernie, you know, Charles, Kenny, these past couple of weeks compared to the dialogue on the NBA on TNT, uh, and that that would actually include Shaq. So that's you know that's a big piece there that we're talking about. Um, it just sounds and feels kind of different compared to you know what I'm usually hearing on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. Um, I, I just think you know guys like Charles Barkley and he has such a big personality and so used to kind of saying whatever he wants on the on the Turner Network or, or you know broadcast compared to the CBS. You know it's more kind of PG PG thirteen and right. That's not necessarily who he is. Twenty. You know he, he's not both. He's not either or. But I think he likes you know being able to to not have to bite his tongue in certain situations. And you can see that he's definitely more reserved, you know. I don't know what the solution would be because clearly CBS needs Turner Sports and it has to do with having enough announcers for, you know, all the various games that they have going on and being in different locations and, and all of that. So, you know, you you have that crew come along to kind of help out uh, the Bryant Gumble crew. Um, so I, I just think that, yes, it, it is kind of over overdue. Maybe it needs a shake-up of different people. I don't really think that Charles and Kenny – not, not that they don't that they don't enjoy it, but I just think that you know it's just not uh, it doesn't play into their wheelhouse of of their skills. I guess is the best way to put yeah, it. Yeah, I agree because sometimes it is blatantly you know they know basketball obviously, but sometimes it becomes blatantly obvious that they don't watch that much college basketball, right? Also, that's a big factor. They bar they you know Charles barely keeps up with the NBA. So. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's hard to, it's hard to believe that he sits there and has these analytical breakdowns of all these college programs and games because there's just simply not enough time because there's so many different games and schools and so yeah that that is a big another big reason I would agree too yeah and so to ask them when they've been you know doing their NBA shows since November to you know to to basically parachute in in the middle of March in the most important games of the season and to just all of a sudden be able to start talking about some of these obscure, you know, players you're talking about the small school, you know, cause again, they, they know the game and they can talk about the game and things they saw in the game, but they just don't have the same knowledge. And sometimes they say things and guys like Seth Davis and Clark Kellogg, who actually cover the college game and are passionate about the college game and know these players and coaches inside and out you know Charles will say something and Seth or Clark will kind of look at him and it's like they've got to you know try to try to act like you know they're they're going to kind of go along with things that they're saying when you know that they just want to say you don't know what the heck you're talking about you know and and so that you know like Barkley is obviously great for entertainment they they have him on there because they bring eyeballs to it but I, I just I, I I think that that CBS has enough in the way of of some of those other guys who I just mentioned, whether it's Seth Davis or or Clark Kellogg or John Rothstein, you know, some of these other guys who actually cover the game, the college game on a regular basis, who could bring a lot more insight than than Charles Barkley is able to bring. Because like you said, he's great with the NBA, but he's an NBA guy. That's that's what he pays attention to. I just don't think that he is into the college game enough you know to to bring much more than you know some comedic relief and a little bit of entertainment from time to time I think that's what it comes down to 
All right, last question tonight. Fill in the blank. It is blank that the Buffalo Bills are finally going to build a new stadium. It's going to cost $1.4 billion, but it will not be a domed stadium. It's idiotic, but I think I understand why Buffalo is doing this. It's part of the reason. It's that home field advantage that Buffalo has of being an open-air stadium, being, you know, when you get into probably November, definitely December, January, there's horrible conditions outside. It's cold. There's a lot of snow. I, I think they like that, though. It plays into who the Bills want to be and, you know, what they've always kind of been and, and the Bills Mafia and and all that stuff. But when you're putting $1.4 into and I saw the breakdown of who all is paying what, you know, the city's playing X amount, the NFL is paying X amount. Um, just the breakdown, you, we're talking about four or five different big agencies putting in millions of dollars. Um, you would think that you would want the most pristine, uh, the most up-to-date type of, you know, building that there, or I guess I should say stadium that there could be. Um, and, and to not go with a dome, it also limits yourself to what you can do with it as well of, you know, concerts, indoor basketball tournaments. Final uh, fours, yes. Final, you, you can do so many different things when you have a dome on there, but when you have that, you're just limiting yourself uh, to predominantly football, really, because I guarantee you that you're not going to have soccer games in there when it's that cold. You know, maybe in the summertime, you, you could use it for that, but there's just so many. You can almost say you lose an aisle on 50 to 75% of opportunities that come with having a dome and so when you're putting that kind of money into it and then not fully utilizing its maximum potential i think that it it draws some eyebrows yeah and i mean that's why you know the bears with that arlington heights project that's why they're talking about a dome you can you can do all those different things at the very least have a retractable roof dome you know and if you want it to be cold it can be cold because i've i've also read that they're talking about going to uh to to real grass on that field that they're going to have and that's that's great that they're going to do that and it's great that they want to have that home field advantage with the cold weather and and all those different things but 1.4 billion dollars in just what you outlined there you're completely limiting the revenue sources that you can have you'll never be able to host a final four and you could host a final four if you're buffalo and you know or Final fours, regional finals. Area. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that you could do with a dome stadium in the middle of winter that they can't do right now, and they could be making a lot more money, and that's money for, for not just the Buffalo Bills, but restaurants, hotels, the entire city around them that they could be bringing in more revenue. So I don't think it makes a lot of sense, but I, I am glad that they are at least getting a new – stadium because this has been a big deal for a long time they've got a really old antiquated stadium and uh, I, I think it's it's uh, great that the buffalo bills and you know that the bills are going to be able to stay in buffalo for a long time by doing this i just you know i'm just pretty surprised that they're cutting off a huge revenue source by not at least going with a retractable roof on that thing all right jess good stuff as always i will talk to you next week sounds good see you next tuesday okay take care Jesse Styers, Sean Styers, Rapid Fire concludes on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. We're going to take a timeout. We've got more Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat coming up next on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. Wrapping up Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat tonight. Don't forget we've got the Final Four coming up Saturday night, Kansas and Villanova. 6.09, and then about 9 o'clock, Duke, North Carolina. 
Kansas a four and a half point favorite over the Wildcats, who will be without their second leading scorer and second best three point shooter, Justin Moore. He averages 15 points and uh, has hit a few three pointers this season. Torn Achilles, though, uh, but so the Jayhawks are a four and a half point favorite against Villanova. And Kansas in the final four, despite the fact that their best player, All-American O.J. Abaji, I mean, he really hasn't done a whole lot. When you look at, he hit right on his uh, point average the other day in uh, the win against Miami, but really did a lot of it when the game was pretty much already decided in the second half. So that's going to be an interesting matchup. Really good Villanova team, not the best Kansas team that Bill Self has had, but here they are in the final four uh, in the running for a national championship. And, of course, Duke and Coach K and Duke minus four, a four-point favorite against North Carolina, their rival, who uh, beat them at Cameron Indoor in uh, Mike Krzyzewski's final game at Cameron Indoor Stadium. So uh, a couple of good ones, and we'll have the action for you Saturday night here on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. And, of course, we'll have the national championship game coming up Monday as well. Kansas won its last national championship in 2008 in their first final four in four years Villanova in the first in their first final four since 2018 as well when they won the second of their uh, two national championships in a three-year stretch Duke in its first final four since 2015 in Carolina in the first in its first final four since 2017 an interesting Villanova Duke and uh, North Carolina all in their first Final Fours since winning their last national championship. NIT semifinals are tonight at Madison Square Garden. Texas A&M, team that was a bubble team left out of the NCAA tournament. They're minus two against Washington State tonight. That'll be the second game, 9.30 tonight. The early game has St. Bonaventure against Xavier. And St. Bonaventure minus one and a half against the Musketeers, who will have a new head coach. Um, Sean Miller. I was, I, all I could think of was Archie Miller, but it's not Archie. It is Sean Miller back at Xavier uh, a year after um, being dismissed at Arizona. So St. Bonaventure and Xavier tonight in one semifinal at 7 o'clock and Washington State and Texas A&M in the other. That's going to do it for Budweiser's weekday sports beat tonight. Brought to you by Budweiser, Midland Engineering Company, Tim Grau State Farm Insurance, Four Winds Casinos, Barnabies of Mishawaka and Granger, the Food Bank of Northern Indiana, the Mishawaka Education Foundation, and Wings Etc. Grill and Pub. Talk to you tomorrow night. WSBT South Bend. Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering, char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today.